Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Campaigners hit out at misleading data justifying Museum of London and Bastion House's demolition. Government backtracks on tweet claiming stamp duty cut could help average income London house buyers. Fulham Community Centre tipped to win the UK architecture's highest accolade. And what Norman Foster's Hippocratic Oath for Architects tells us about the important issue of succession within architectural practice. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Jonathan Morrison. Jonathan is architecture correspondent at The Times and author of a new report on the longevity of architectural firms called The Practice of Succession. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Campaigners have hit out of plans by the architects Dillis Gafidio and Renfro and Shepard Robson to demolish a prominent corner of the acclaimed Barbican estate, claiming environmental studies used to justify the controversial demolition and rebuild strategy are based on misleading data about carbon emissions and the site's structure. This story, covered by regular London guest Will Ng in the AJ, marks the latest twist in the battle between the City of London Corporation, which is backing the project, and local campaigners Barbican Quarter Action Group. The City of London, which owns the Barbican Estate and is leading the redevelopment plans for the Powell & Moyer Design Museum of London and Bastion House, published a whole-life carbon assessment for the development in May. This report concluded that, quote, retaining the existing buildings is not appropriate, and that although demolition and rebuild would require more carbon spend in absolute terms, it would perform 10% better on a kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent basis. The corporation's report also said that the risks of disproportionate collapse at Bastion House, that's the huge 1970s office block above the Museum of London, was an inherent challenge and that structural interventions to make the building safe would be technically, practically and economically very challenging. However, the Barbican Quarter Action Group commissioned its own independent structural and whole life carbon report for the development and it claims that the City of London's whole life carbon assessment used misleading data to wrongly dismiss options to retain and retrofit existing structures. Moreover, a structural report authored by Bob Sag of Alan Connersby Associates said that Bastion House is not threatened by disproportionate collapse due to its in-situ reinforced concrete construction. Stag said, quote, Noting the substantial size and arrangement of the structural elements in the buildings, I consider it most unusual to even question this aspect. 
So, Jonathan, what's this all about? Why do the City of London Corporation seem so set on demolishing these two prominent, quite historic buildings? Uh, and why are Barbican residents and locals uh, so up in arms against them? Well, I mean, City are constantly in a sort of arms race to get the biggest buildings, the best buildings, um, the most cultural activities, uh, to cement their position as perhaps the, the foremost borough in the UK. It used to be about competing with Frankfurt, now it's about competing with other parts of London. Um, so they're, they're desperate to, to try and sort of make their, their cultural mile, as they call it, work. And they've already identified the site for the Museum of London um, as a place where they were planning to build a concert hall. Um, that's now gone out the window. Uh, so they've got this, this site that they need to do something with um, they've moved the, the Museum of London to Smithfields, um, so they now obviously want to reuse the site. Um, it's very surprising, however, that Bureau Happold, who are a very prominent firm of engineers, have got their sums wrong. Um, it might be to do with different ways of modelling exactly the future use of the site. Um, but it, it would be very surprising if pulling down an existing building is better for the environment. And I thought we'd slightly gone beyond this. You know, There clearly needs to be a presumption that it's better to reuse buildings than just demolish them. Yeah, and it's interesting you talked about this kind of arms race. And one thing that certainly goes on within these recruiters, these big financial firms, is they're all competing to get the best talent. They all want to offer kind of groovy office spaces. And you kind of think, could a conversion of the Museum of London and Bastion House into a kind of super cool, retrofitted, groovy workspace might, might actually be a great way of getting people to come and work for your company rather than just you know another big old office block. It's not the most promising site, but there's clearly an opportunity to do something much better there. But in the city, money talks effectively, and we've seen some incredible planning disasters over the years, um, notably what's happening with Broadgate, uh, designed by Peter Foggo in the 80s and probably one of the best developments of the 1980s. Um, one side's been replaced with five Broadgate, possibly my least favourite building in London, um, simply because UBS, this big Swiss bank, threatened to throw their toys out of the pram if they didn't get planned permission back in 2015. So it, it really comes down to you know, who's the most chance to attract talent, the most chance to, to make money. And it's interesting because obviously when we cast our minds back to things like the Broadgate redevelopment controversy, a lot of the debate back then was about whether or not the buildings should be listed, not so much about uh, the environmental costs, which obviously, you know, it's so much more of a realised to be pressing issue in the present era. Now, here we've got two separate independent investigations looking into the whole life carbon and structural integrity of these existing buildings, the Museum of London Complex, Bastion House. Um, and they've come to two very different conclusions. You know, how are we in a situation where investigations grounded in science and engineering can give such different results? I mean, I think it comes down to what they're, they're projecting into the future. So they've, they've probably come up with different models for how it's going to be used, how many people will be there, how many years it will be left standing, things like that. I can't imagine either one of those two teams is getting the maths wrong. It seems unlikely. Um, so, I mean, there's clearly a case that more stringent guidelines would be useful. So we know we're comparing apples with apples rather than apples with oranges. Um, it's interesting that these sort of studies are now the trump card when it comes to planning permission. You know, you pull this out and you say, well, actually, this one's going to be more environmentally friendly or this one's going to be more environmentally friendly, and it makes all the difference. Um, so if we are going to be, you know, giving these reports the, the weight that perhaps they deserve then we definitely need to know what we're talking about. Now, interestingly, elsewhere in London, a big story, uh, in certainly in local media, was the South Norwood Library in Croydon being saved from demolition. Um, this has followed years of campaigning, like quite prolific on social media, the Save Brutalist Library campaign. Um, 
Now, Jonathan, if we sort of cast our minds back uh, over the decades, you know, brutalist buildings like the like South Norwood Library or the Paul Moy Museum of London Complex, in the past, they were often demolished without such a, such a debate as what we're having now. I mean, one example I would give would be the John Bancroft-designed Pimlico School. This is like a sort of brutalist landmark that was swept away and replaced with something not very exciting. Um, what's changed? Well, I think there's now a recognition that not all brutalism is bad. Um, you know, tastes have moved on, um, much like they did back when John Betjeman was campaigning to save St Pancras um, and all Victorian buildings or anything red brick was considered, you know, hideous and horrible and should be demolished. So, um, so yeah, definitely taste has moved on. But also, I think, quite rightly, locals resent people coming in and demolishing their amenities. I mean, it's a library. They... Uh, <laughs> that people need to read books. Uh, it's um, it's understandable that they would be slightly annoyed by that. Um, so good for them. HM Treasury has been forced to delete a tweet slammed as nonsense, which talked up how stamp duty reductions in the recent mini budget could make access to home ownership easier in London. The tweet in question read, quote, a typical first time buyer in London moving into a representative terrace house will save £11,250 on stamp duty. And... £1,050 on household energy bills. And if they earn £30,000, almost an additional £400 on tax. The tweet suggested that people could save nearly £13,000 a year following Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget. Uh, the tweet was quickly removed after Martin Lewis, founder of financial advice site Money Saving Expert, called the government's calculations nonsense. He tweeted, quote, To make that stamp duty saving, you need to be buying a £500,000 property. Uh, with a 10% deposit, the cheapest fixed mortgage would cost £2,400 per month or £28,000 per year. How can someone on £30,000 a year afford that? Meanwhile, the news site Property Industry Eye zoomed into the effects of Quartung's budget on the housing market, warning that UK banks are now being told to prepare for house prices to plummet by a third. The Bank of England's annual stress test scenario designed to weed out potential weaknesses in the banking system in the wake of the 2008 financial crash will also test dramatically surging inflation and interest rates and UK employment more than doubling. Um, so, Jonathan, among the sort of turmoil following Kwasi Kwarteng's not-so-mini-budget announced a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Treasury appears to be focusing on how a lowering of stamp duty will, in theory, make it easier for average first-time buyers to get on the housing market. Um, why, when house prices look to potentially fall, is the government so keen for ho home ownership to go up? Well, firstly, I don't really understand why the government communications have gone so seriously wrong. I mean, they employ a lot of highly paid PR experts to try and get these things right. So it's slightly worrying that this sort of nonsense is coming out of the, uh, the Treasury, if that's who was tweeting. Um, across the board, it's more like a £2,500 reduction uh, in stamp duty. Um, you're getting the first part of, I think it was £125,000 um, without stamp duty. So you're unlikely to save more than 25 K as far as I can calculate it, um, which is not going to make all that much difference when house prices are so high and you'd be very lucky to get a terrace house in London for 600000 and you'd be extraordinarily lucky to get a mortgage for 20 times your earnings of 30000 um, So it's all very, very weird. Um, why is there a home ownership push? Uh, because that's where Tories traditionally think votes will come from. Um, that everyone who buys a house will become a Tory. It worked for Margaret Thatcher, etc. so why won't it work for us? Um, the Bank of England stress test is something they conduct every year. Um, it's a legacy of the 2008 banking crisis, and it's good that they do it, I think. Um, 
it's slightly worrying the figures that they're coming up with for this year's test. They've said their uh, inflation of 17%, uh, 31% drop in house prices, which seems weirdly specific. So why not 30% or 40%? And a doubling of unemployment. Um, so that's very worrying. Those figures are very worrying, but that's the theoretical worst case. And that's just check the banks can survive um, another protracted crisis like 2008. Um, is that something to worry about? Maybe. Um, I mean, things are not going well. The, I think everyone is expecting house prices to collapse, maybe by as much as 31%. Um, will that have an impact on the economy? Certainly. Will that have an impact on people trying to get on the housing ladder? Certainly. Um, it's going to be very difficult to get a mortgage. The Bank of England has emphasised that its stress test is not a forecast. Uh, however, it does represent a severe yet plausible scenario going forward. Um, Jonathan, could you translate these figures into a picture of what that may look like for London if it were to come to pass? What will, what will happen if house prices uh, fall so far and so quickly, particularly when, like you say, uh, the private sectors had this fairly consistent approach to delivering homes? Um, and in recent decades, that's involved a kind of public-private deal where a small sliver is, is put towards meeting the very real housing needs of London. Um, what it will look like is a lot of people will go into negative equity, um, probably myself included. Um, if people are in negative equity, i.e. they can't sell their house for the price they bought it at, um, the housing magnet, uh, market will completely stagnate. Um, so there will be very little movement of any sort. The state agents will find it very hard to make a living. Um, you, there might be one or two people who have secure employment who can pick up bargains, but for most people, it will be pretty worrying. Now, just on that topic, The Guardian reported this week that the UK's two wealthiest people, the Hinduja brothers, have been allowed to avoid planning rules that should have required them to build 98 affordable homes at their new £1.2 billion luxury redevelopment of the Old War Office opposite Horse Guards Parade. Um, Jonathan, is this a typical outcome for a development like this when it comes to delivering affordable housing? Um, yes, it is. I mean, developers have been very good at getting around requirements and finding loopholes for time immemorial, and I'm, I'm not sure the uh, Hinduja brothers are any different. Um, it's a bit like tax avoidance. Um, it's really up to people to tighten rules that will enforce them better, um, and that really needs to happen. It's a bit of a joke, frankly, how easy it is for developers to get out of what was Section 106 requirements to build social housing and things like that. Um yeah, we, we need to enforce our, our planning regulations a lot better. The Sands End Arts and Community Centre in Fulham, designed by London Architects May, has been tipped to win the UK's most prestigious architecture award, the Sterling Prize, according to the bookies odds. This was a story featured in the AJ, which has also published a critics roundup of the Sterling Prize shortlist and a series of films exploring each of the six competing schemes. Winning odds for May's West London building, built with engineered wood and specialist bricks created from construction waste, are now being offered at just 6-4, to four, a drop from the original price of 3-1. to one. This means bookies think this early favourite has now become even more likely to scoop the highest accolade in UK architecture when it's announced next week. However, the new library at Magdalen College in Cambridge, designed by Niall McLaughlin Architects, which has been nominated three times previously for the prize, is not far behind in a close second place. Panterhudspeth's Orchard Garden Scheme in Elephant and Castle, the bookie's original second favourite on the six-strong shortlist, has slipped, as has fellow London project Henley Hellbrow's Hackney New Primary School and 333 Kingsland Road. According to the bookmaker William Hill, Fourth Valley College, Falkirk Campus in Scotland by Ryak and Hall Architects is the outsider to win the prize. Last year's Sterling Prize went to Grafton Architects, Kingston University Townhouse, 
The six-story multi-purpose higher education building in southwest London had not been William Hill's favourite to win, instead favouring Mark's Barfield's Cambridge Central Mosque. This year's overall winner will be announced on Tuesday the 13th of October at the RABA 66 Portland Place. So, Jonathan, what do you make of the Sands End Arts and Community Centre in Fulham? Could it be a worthy Sterling Prize winner? Well, I like it very much. It's certainly worthy. Um, I'm not sure it's the best of the six contenders, but it ticks a lot of boxes. It's public-spirited. It's eco-friendly with the use of CLT, uh, which is an important technology, uh, certainly for the future. It's flexible. It's evolved the local community. Um, but it's hardly that groundbreaking. It doesn't knock your socks off or have that much of a wow factor, to be honest. Um, and I'm not sure the bookmakers are necessarily that knowledgeable about architecture. Um, when I was in the RIBA press office many, many years ago, uh, we just phoned them up and they would give us the odds pretty much over the phone as soon as the shortlist was announced because they knew it would get them a bit of publicity. It's not very scientific. My personal favourite is the library at Magdalen. Uh, it's a very good project by good architects. Um, I suspect the, the sort of the elitism of uh, working for a Cambridge college will count against them. Um, certainly, that's the way it's been been trending in recent years. After Bloomberg, which was obviously the biggest and most expensive project ever to win, uh, but since then we've had Goldsmith Street by Mikael Riches, which is again very. Um, responsible. Uh, I mean, it's a very good project, but it ticks a lot of the same boxes. Um, and then I think it may be that Riak and Hall, it, they may win it because there's a perception that it, it will be their turn after they've been shortlisted twice in recent years. So um, I think all bets are off. Now, obviously, we're a London-focused show, so the Sterling Prize uh, caught our attention for featuring four London projects this year. And obviously, we were quite excited that last year's winner was the Kingston Townhouse uh, by Grafton, also in London. Um, what do you think uh, this says about the kind of quality and ambition of London's contemporary architecture? Um, there's obviously a lot of like you know, levelling up debates which try and make out as though there's an unfair bias towards the capital. Um but, um, you know, London's still an enormous place with an enormous diversity of people and needs. And um, clearly public buildings seem to be an important part of, of that. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's always been the case that big projects are built where the money is. Um, that's true of the city and that's true of London in general. Um, and big projects and good architecture cost money. Um, I'm not quite sure how you get away from that. So I don't, I don't think there's anything, you know, there's nothing sinister going on in, in the... London bias of the Sterling Prize. Um, it's just a fact of life, unfortunately, that the, the capital tends to be where the biggest and the best projects are built. And I think it's interesting that you were talking about um, the nature of the prize and the sort of the sort of projects that it goes to, um, because it certainly seems to be more and more kind of narrative-led in recent years. So I could certainly think last year, looking at the list, it made sense to me that Kingston Townhouse would win it. And looking at this list there's a nice story about a community centre. You know, if you think, like, as a narrative, that kind of fits together quite well. Um, this year's shortlisted buildings include the community centre, a library, a school, university campus. They're all public sector buildings. It's four years since Foster & Partners, Bloomberg headquarters in the Square Mile won the prize. Um, what does this say about how tastes are, are shifting, how this prize is becoming much more focused on those kind of struggles of meeting public need through architecture? I mean, I think the judges are, are becoming a bit more politically astute. They realise that 
um, giving a prize to a, a swanky great office block is not going to look that good. So I think they are definitely taking into um, consideration the fact that things are socially useful, that they're environmentally friendly, as I say, that they have the involvement of and support of local communities. Um, I don't see that changing in the years to come. Renowned British architect Norman Foster will next month be the lead voice behind a UN sustainability declaration targeting architects and outlining a set of principles for sustainable and inclusive urban design. Coined the San Marino Declaration, the Hippocratic Oath for Designers of Buildings is grounded in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And Foster says the, quote, equivalent of the oath that physicians in ancient Greece undertook to uphold ethical standards. The declaration sets out the goal for every city, urban infrastructure and building to be designed in line with the set of integrated and indivisible principles which range from respect for cultural identity to affordability and accessibility and climate neutrality. The move marks a significant legacy for the nearly 90-year-old star, who's one of the UK's most famous architects and heads up London's largest architectural practice, Foster & Partners. London is a city with a large architectural community and many large, famous and highly successful studios, which are often headed up by leading architects who, like Norman Foster in later age, will need to consider the question of succession. Indeed, this is such a burning issue for London architects that the public relations firm Ing Media has created a report looking into the question authored by this week's guest, Jonathan Morrison. Um, So, Jonathan, having looked into this issue quite closely, what do you think of Norman Foster's Hippocratic Oath? Um, Does this show an interesting approach to leaving legacy? uh, And how does it compare to other London architects who are tackling this issue of succession? I mean, firstly, on Foster, I think it's a very good idea. Um, It'd be interesting to see how much buy-in there is from the international architecture community, because I I don't think every nation is quite as far advanced as we are when it comes to um, ensuring carbon neutrality and things like that. Um, Certainly in America, I don't think it's quite as pressing an issue. It's another extraordinary move from Norman Foster after an extraordinary career, um, and good for him. It's amazing that he's still able to exert so much influence at his age, and I think history will be very kind to him. He's he's got an amazing legacy. I don't think he gets enough credit for really changing the face of architecture with things like the Sainsbury Centre at the same, you know, structural expressionism came along at the same time that um, brutalism was in its sort of dying throes. Um, and he and people like Rogers and Grimshaw and Renzo Piano, they they reshaped architecture. Um, we're still using the, the tools that they put in place. Um, so, as I say, I think history will be very kind to Foster. Um, it would be interesting to see what happens when he moves on um, but it that's something that um, obviously I've been writing about in my reports for ING Media the practice of succession launched today um, and it came about because um, I, was, I was thinking about Richard Rogers in particular and it struck me that there was an interesting question to be asked about what happens when an architectural practice or any sort of firm that's built around a, a big name like Foster or Rogers what happens when the founder is is gone Um, And that seemed to be particularly the case where we associate one big name with that work, as in the case of Foster, for example. We talk about it being Foster's design for the Gherkin or the Millennium Bridge, uh, when obviously it's the work of a large team of architects and the people who actually make it stand up are the engineers or make it stop wobbling, at least. Um, So it's a reputational thing. We still cling to the idea that good buildings are works touched by genius, and perhaps sometimes they are, and architects quite like that idea as well. Um, I mean, I, I was thinking the story of Renzo Piano sketched shard on the back of a napkin over lunch with the developer, Erwin Seller, 
But there's unquestionably been an absence when someone like Rogers, who's founded a large company, departs. He's the guiding light, the leader. So there must be a gulf of some sort. So that's why it seemed like an interesting topic to tackle for me. And I guess there is something at stake here because if firms don't consider any of this, what what's, what could happen? Well, I mean, one of the um, case studies is about Robert Adam and Adam Architects. Um, and for example, Robert was clearly very exasperated that he was, quote, hanged by his own petard, as he put it, and pretty much forced out of the firm that he founded. So it can go horribly wrong if people don't think about these things. That's the sort of, that's the warning example, um, the cautionary tale of the, of the nine big interviews inside. Um, but also there's a lot of good advice. People like Trish McCarthy of um, Arup set out clear plans for how you can go about, um, you know, deciding what happens after you leave the company you founded. And obviously, you know, creating a report like this has involved a lot of research, a lot of interviews. Um, were you surprised by some of the responses you were getting, or was it actually um, quite predictable the way people were considering legacy? Um, I was surprised by quite how much time and effort people were putting into it, to be honest. As I say, with people like NNBJ, um, I mean... I had the head of the company talking for about three hours about exactly how they go about identifying successors and promoting people through the business and you know, handing on from generation to generation. So I think I was, I was actually quite taken aback by how much thought people do put into it. We're now on to the culture section. Uh, so, Jonathan, uh, any tips on cool things coming up in London that listeners might want to check out on the weekend or in the coming weeks? Absolutely. Um, so the Sone Museum has a forthcoming exhibition with Grafton Architects starting on the 18th uh, of October, um, looking at how the new LSE Marshall Building on Lincoln's Inn Fields is influenced by and indebted to Sir John Sone's ideas. So how ideas endure through the centuries in architecture should be very interesting. Sounds great. We've um, had a tip from a previous London guest, which is Will Jennings, uh, about a Haifa Studios exhibition. So Will is associated with Haifa Studios, a charity which puts creatives into empty high street and retail spaces for free. Uh, They've got a new exhibition celebrating the work of um, many artists who work with them over the past year. Uh, it's an exhibition space which they're all allowed to use for free, uh, and they've all they had a, an open call uh, for artists. Uh, it, it's going to be at 56 Conduit Street, uh, so uh, a good excuse to to go over to Mayfair uh, to see a show. Don't do that very often, and it runs from the 10th to the 16th of October. Uh, meanwhile, uh, this week, the Architectural Association in Bedford Square is hosting AA Approaches, a week-long festival of ideas. Um, check out their website to see all of the fascinating talks that are happening daily, uh, finishing with a big party on Friday night to celebrate 175 years of the Architectural Association. Jonathan, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the London this week. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks uh, for having me. And where should listeners go to keep up to speed with your writing? Is there uh, a website or social media handles they should check out? Uh, the website is thetimes.co.uk. <laughs> Very exciting. I'm afraid it's behind the paywall, but that's where you'll find me writing. Fantastic. Thanks again. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at OpenCityLondon, 
or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.